Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Uh, So that form of teaching is usually called expositional preaching. Expositional is just a fancy word for uh, I get up here and I explain or exposit what the text has for us, what the text would say to us. And we have this philosophical commitment here at Journey Church because we believe this about the Bible. We believe that that God has spoken in the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, as the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Believing that statement, then, we think that the best use of our time together is to come again and again to God's word and to figure out what it would have to say for us today about what it means to live a life of faith and obedience to God, which means understanding, then, who God is and who we are. Alongside this commitment to expositional preaching, since I'm bringing it up now, and since I think it has been displayed wonderfully in the service, let me encourage you to look at the QR code in the seat in front of you, and if you haven't already, scan that and, it'll, and uh, check in and send Sarah a message asking for our Prepare for Sunday email. Because that email that goes out every week between Wednesday evening and Friday morning is in, uh, it endeavors to introduce you to everything you encounter here on a Sunday morning, because we believe when we gather together, we will get the most use out of our time if we have thought about and reflected on what we are doing here, what we are singing, what we are hearing read, what we are hearing preached and proclaimed each and every Sunday. If we reflect and think about those things ahead of time, we're providing more material and more opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in us, to form and fashion us, in the image of Christ. And so we put a premium on that here because we believe that such reflection gives us an opportunity to walk in greater depth as disciples. And to that end, then, you should know that each element of this gathering, everything that you have experienced from the stage thus far, is geared towards proclaiming one central message. It is geared towards projecting forward what the scripture has for us this morning. And so if you sign up for that email, you can use that as a devotional guide for the latter half of the week to prepare for what we're doing here as we gather. And what are we doing here? We are going to spend the next few, well, not just the next few weeks. We started last week, and we're going to go up to Easter meditating on and reflecting on this letter of 2 Timothy. And as we go through this letter, we are going to see that Paul instructs his young protege in Christian virtue and spiritual growth. In the theology of the church, including a philosophical and practical instruction for ministry, we're going to see the need to endure suffering and shame, the nature and manifestations of unbelief, the trustworthiness of God's word, and at every turn as we go throughout this letter, we are going to find that underneath and behind and pushing forward all of these things is the very gospel which brings us into the Christian life. That all of the exhortations that Paul makes in this letter, all the instruction that Paul gives in this letter— is informed by and motivated by and pushed forward by the gospel of Jesus. 
In effect, Paul is reminding us and clarifying for us that the good news of Jesus Christ is not simply how we start the Christian life, but it is the, it is the theme that runs for those who live by it from the beginning to the end of our lives. And this morning, we pick up where Pastor Jim left off last week. Actually, in fact, last week, he cherry-picked the first verse of my passage. So in a sort of spirit of brotherly competition, I'm taking two verses, one from his passage last week and one from his passage next week. So we'll see what he's able to pull away after that. At some point, we're just going to be doing the entire letter. That's just the entire letter every week because we keep on stealing from each other. So while this morning we're focusing on chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, I'm going to read starting in verse 7 and run through 15 to give us a little bit more context. But before we dive into God's word first this morning, let's go to him one more time in prayer. Father in heaven, it is in your holy name that we gather this morning. We come to worship together each and every Sunday, the first day of the week, the morning, the early hours of our day, of our week, as a tithe offering to you, giving you our time, the first fruits of it, the first opportunities of it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would take these moments, those already spent in proclaiming and praising and hallowing your name, and the ones before us, that you would take these moments and shape them and use them to form our hearts and our minds and our wills and the whole of our lives that we might be directed towards Christ-likeness. So we ask that each time we gather, but we ask it this morning in this moment now, and we pray it in the name of the one whom we long to look like, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 through 15. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in my suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because our works, but because of the purpose of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. For you are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. So this morning, as we unpack this stream of thought, I think we see three things in it. We see in verses 8 and 11 and 12, the main current of the paragraph, the concept of not being ashamed. But we also see underneath that a undercurrent in verses 9 and the first sentence of 10 where Paul brings the gospel to bear on this particular situation. 
And finally, in verses 13 and 14, we encounter an estuary, which is where a river meets the sea. And so we find where the the current of this text meets the sea of the Christian life and informs us how we should actually live in light of what Paul is telling us. Now, for those of you wondering, I have at this point completely exhausted my knowledge of rivers from the unit that my son went through in his first grade class. So that analogy is done, and we're just going to move on. So first content, first concept, do not be ashamed. Last week we heard Pastor Jim unpack the concepts we started with in verse 7. That by the Holy Spirit who lives in every believer, we have no need of fear. We can in fact put away fear and turn away from fear because we have now been filled with the Holy Spirit who gives us a spirit of power, love, and self-control. And so we can live in light of those rather than in light of fear. And because this is a critical concept for our text, I want to come back and touch it again, explain it again, uh, although briefly. So last week, Pastor Jim summarized that power, love, and self-control may look different than how we would expect them to look. Because in our culture, we have reallocated and reassigned these words to different sectors so that we sort of end up avoiding what the Bible actually means when it talks about them. And so for power in the modern context, for most people today, it's some kind of Nietzschean force or mechanical way of self-preservation or self-creation. Now I say Nietzschean, that's just a big word. It comes after the name of a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, if God is dead, then all things are to be permitted. Actually, he didn't say that because he spoke in German, but I don't know German. So we're just going to say that's what he said. That if God is dead, all things are to be permitted, which means everything is morally acceptable. So the question then for us becomes, in light of Friedrich Nietzsche, what should I do, how should I live if all things are acceptable? Now, in many ways in our culture, we see what happens when people take that to the extreme, but what we need to recognize is that there are myriad ways in which we can live a very Nietzschean will-to-power life where I take my will, my desires, and I use power to enforce my will or my desires on this world in order to obtain the life I want. And that might look fairly respectable. Sociologists have long spoken of the uh, Christian work ethic or the Christian life in terms of something that seems WASPy, WASP being an acronym standing for White, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant. Not that they say you have to be White, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant, just that they say lots of people endeavor and strive for that life. Similarly, you might hear concepts in, in philosophy things or on podcasts talking about living a bourgeois, which is French for middle class, life. You see, a lot of that has value for your average American, but we need to understand that there are worldly ways and there are other ways that look respectable to us of living this will-to-power life, where we take what we want and we just use power to obtain it, and so power becomes a resource for us to enforce our desires upon the world. By contrast, then, love in our context is often devoid of any power, any weight, or any meaning. Love blows around like a tissue paper or a plastic bag caught in the wind. This actually traces back to a guy named Dante, who in his Divine Comedy said that those who struggle with lust instead of love, they actually in hell, they're like light-weighted. And so the winds of hell just blow them about because they have no weight to them. They have no meaning to them. And so we've kind of substituted the word for love with lust. And so we think of love primarily in in a sexual way, and we think of love primarily as something that can be changed or uh, augmented or turned directions at the slightest stimuli. 
Meanwhile, self-control, we take and we lock it in a closet of our heart, and we only let it out when some, the right in front of the closet is something that needs to be optimized. So this room needs to be clean. My budget needs to be organized. I need to get stuff done at work. I need to, uh, I need to enforce my will upon uh, a healthy work life or family budget. And that's how we conceptualize these ideas, these terms. But as Jim explained last week, we need to remember that the idea of power, love, and self-control are not things that are found essentially in this world, but we have a spirit typified by power, love, and self-control because we are filled by a capital S spirit who is known by his power, love, and self-control. In other words, because the Holy Spirit lives within each and every believer, we have power, love, and self-control. And that power can't be about self-creation because God's love, the Holy Spirit's love, is fundamentally self-sacrificing, which is why the love of the Holy Spirit compels Christ to go to the cross. Moreover, it cannot be self-asserting where we simply take our desires and force them upon the world because it's constrained by the same self-control that kept Christ every moment of his earthly life in perfect alignment with God's will. And so we know that power, love, and self-control has to mean something different than the Nietzschean way, the mechanistic way, the self-serving way, which they are often used in this world. Paul, then, speaking of those things, says, Therefore, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. In other words, because of these characteristics from the Holy Spirit, we are to exercise them towards unashamedness. Power, love, and self-control are resources we can draw on to remain unashamed in a world that, implied by Paul, is attempting to shame us. But it's not simply unashamed about anything. It is unashamed particularly about the gospel and about Paul himself, because he attaches the phrase to it, nor of me. And he is God's prisoner, he says. Now let's pause for a moment here and reflect why this would be important. I mean, Paul is, after all, writing this letter to Timothy. That's who the letter is named for, the recipient. Now, Timothy is a pastor, like Pastor Jim or myself, which I would think telling a pastor to not be ashamed of the gospel or another gospel worker is a lot like telling a surgeon not to be squeamish about blood or an NFL player not to be afraid of contact. It feels like it comes with the job description. Like, you shouldn't be here if this is an issue you struggle with. You shouldn't have a scalpel if you're going to respond poorly to what comes when you touch the scalpel to somebody's skin, right? That's, you don't want that for your surgeon. Likewise, I think we can be thrown off by this because the concept of honor and shame being used in this text to not be ashamed of something is often something we are told as Westerners we don't actually struggle with. Now, I don't think that's true, but if you read enough sociology, you'll find that people like to classify Eastern cultures as honor and shame cultures and Western cultures as right and justice cultures. We care about right and wrong, not honor and shame. So how then do we understand this? What for us does it mean, this exhortation, to not be ashamed? Now, this is where I think it's important to recognize the structure of the text. When I walk through the outline, I said starting in verse 8, and then we skip a bunch in the middle, and we come in picking up the same theme of unashamedness later in verse 11. Now, part of that is because I think 
Paul probably had some sort of like Holy Spirit-induced ADHD, so he starts on one stream of thought and then hops off somewhere else and then comes back to that stream of thought later on in the conversation, expecting Timothy to just be able to pick up on it later. But let's table that for now, and let's just read 8, 11, 12, and 15 in a row and see how this unpacks itself. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, for which I have been appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You are aware that all in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. Collecting these verses together, then, we see that the issue of unashamedness might not be about Timothy. Last week, Pastor Jim explained why Timothy, there's good reason to believe in the text that there's evidence Timothy might have been a timid person, but it seems like it might not be Timothy's characteristics of timidness that provoke this particular exhortation. Rather, it's Paul's immediate experience. He has two people, probably friends, because he knows them by name, Philegius and Hermogenes, who have abandoned Tiffany, or Tif Tiffany, not Tiffany, my wife has nothing to do with this text right now, <laughs> who have abandoned Paul, there we go, let's just cut that out of the book, <laughs> uh, who have abandoned Paul in a way that Paul seems to believe is surprising and hurtful. We don't know who these two people are. I find that interesting. They're never brought up anywhere else in Scripture. You don't find them in the book of Acts. You don't find them referenced in another letter. We don't know who these people are. But we can note that they are talked about in a different way than Paul talks about two other characters in his first letter to Timothy. Timothy, trying very hard to say it that way now. Enunciation's important. In, in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20, Paul writes, "'Hold faith in a good conscience.'" By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. There's always one guy with a weird H name. But among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There, Paul is talking about two different people who have left Paul's ministry, but not only have left Paul's ministry, they have denied the faith. So Paul has put them under church discipline, handed them over to Satan. The people in 2 Timothy, Hermogenes, and Philemon, uh, not Philemon, I need to look back down in order to pronounce this name correctly. Well, the one that starts with P-H. Oh, Philegius. Uh, they are not talked about as abandoning faith. They're talked about as abandoning Paul. The focus here is on that instead. Recognizing this should lead us to question, maybe they don't understand that they don't need to live by fear. They aren't making use of the resources of power, love, and self-control. Rather, it seems that the structure of the text is telling us that when hardship for Paul arose, when persecution arose, when he ended up in prison, they abandoned him. Now, some abandoned the faith and some abandoned Paul. In effect, those who abandoned Paul are saying, I'm not this kind of Christian. And I think that can be difficult for us today because there's so many things that go under the banner of Christianity. And we need to be able to look around and say, I don't think that's real Christianity. Paul does this when he calls out false teachers throughout his text. He's not talking about people who are disassociated from the church. He's talking about people within the church and saying, that thing they're teaching is not true Christianity. And we need to be able to understand, what is the difference between looking at somebody teaching something false and saying, 
I'm not that kind of a Christian, and what is the difference between disavowing God's people, God's church? In order to get into this, in order to approach this rightly, then we need to understand that the instruction and exhortation Paul is giving here to not be ashamed is a social one in as much as it is a theological one, which is to say it is both theological and social. It has roots in both of those concepts. So let's consider the social first, because this might be the more surprising to us. Uh, historian and biblical scholar David A. De Silva says this about the honor and shame culture of the New Testament. The early Christians proclaimed a message that stood for values that differed from and indeed contradicted the core values within the dominant Greco-Roman cultures as well as the Jewish subculture within, the, within which the church arose. Their non-Christian neighbors, therefore, subjected early Christians to censure and other shaming techniques designed to bring these deviant people, that's speaking of Christians, these deviant people back in line with the values and behaviors held dear by the surrounding culture, whether Jewish or Greco-Roman. The authors of the New Testament, therefore, devoted much of their attention to insulating their congregation from the effects of these shaming techniques, calling their hearers to pursue a lasting honor before the court of God whose verdict is eternal. I find this fascinating because unlike sociologists who deny that Westerners struggle with an honor and shame culture, I tend to think human nature holds consistent throughout history, that the things you and I struggle with are certain manifestations, maybe more technologically advanced or maybe different in certain ways because we're Americans rather than Greco-Roman or Jewish, but we struggle with the same things that those in the ancient world did. So it's not about whether we're people who give in to honor and shame or whether we're people who value justice and right and wrong. Rather, it's about what are the sorts of things that honor us and shame us as opposed to those which honored and shamed the ancient world. You know, we like to think of ourselves as independent individuals who are free thinkers. So we send our kids to college and tell them to learn to think for themselves. You don't learn to think for yourself in college. You learn to think about certain things. You learn to what you are supposed to set your mind on, what your professors are teaching you, are directing your attention toward. And we have to admit that if that's true, it's not about thinking for ourselves, but it's about where our social circles point our eyes, point the eyes of our mind to what we set our mind on, what we behold with our mind, then we are far more susceptible to the influences of those around us than we care to think in our individualistic culture. As such, I think it's important for us to ask questions about how people might influence us. Questions like this. Whose praise do I covet? Whose company would I like to keep? Maybe a bit more philosophical. How do I think about myself socially? Maybe a bit more political. Are there names I wouldn't like to be called? Squish? Rhino? Woke? MAGA? Christian nationalist? anti-science, anti-women, anti-love. If somebody stuck one of those labels on you, would you take a step back, defend yourself, change position, augment? What would, would, how would you respond to that? We could also ask, are there topics or opinions that are off-limits to the group that we are a part of? Are there things we're not allowed to talk about in here? Or are there topics or opinions that are associated with the opposition? 
if we are this kind of people and we are against this kind of people, is there an opinion that's associated with these kind of people that we're not allowed to hold? The importance of all of this is that our social spheres influence the way we think, the way we approach the world. And our social spheres might be ashamed of the gospel and its implications. And we might be then tempted to succumb to social pressure, advertent and inadvertent, friends, explicit and implicit. Because often it doesn't seem to me like those around me who aren't believers are trying to force me into a box, but rather a certain ethos about our group, a certain culture within our group is supposed to influence me one way or another. So are we tempted to succumb to the pressures of those whose praise we covet and whose company we keep? In the ancient world, they were susceptible to many cultural pressures. In fact, maybe we are more susceptible to them. I mean, think about it. Our politics becomes increasingly more tribal and increasingly ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. And if there's honor and shame associated with certain political labels, do we not encounter those everywhere we go? Or maybe we can just think in terms of the mental illness crisis. All sorts of studies show that for those who are younger in here, there's increasing struggle with mental illness, with loneliness, with anxiety and stress, which if that's true, then wouldn't you expect that if you have less of a social circle, there's fewer people around you, that the attention and agreement with those people becomes increasingly important? If the average person said that they had 14 close friends three decades ago and now we have three close friends, aren't the opinions of those three close friends increasingly closer to my heart? Because if I lose one of them, I've lost a third of my friend group? That's the social side. But the theological side is this, that we do, in fact, need to draw some lines. After all, you came to a church, not a social club. That means we have a particular mission. We spent all of last year thinking about the mission of this church, and if we lose sight of this mission, there's no reason for any of us to be here. So there's a boundary marker there. More than that, we're a Protestant church, not a Catholic church or an Eastern Orthodox church, which I have friends who are Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, but there's a dividing line between some of the things they believe the Bible says and some of the things we believe the Bible says. Which doesn't mean we need to have animosity, but it does need to mean we need to be clear about our theological identity. Even within being Protestant, we are evangelicals. That eventually, it's not currently out on the wall, but that eventually will be out on the wall. There's Actually, no, it'll say the Journey Church. We used to be First Evangelical Church. Right? We're evangelicals, not the term is liberal Protestants. What that means is that we believe in the Trinity, the exclusivity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture. We don't believe, then, in modalism, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all the same thing, just showing up in different ways at different times. Nor, then, do we believe in universal salvation. We believe that only some are saved because only some make the decision to pursue and follow and submit their lives to King Jesus. And as well, we do not believe in biblical fallibility. We believe, as I read earlier, that the scripture is to be believed and to be followed and to be obeyed in all it teaches. We don't think there are certain historical truths that the Bible gets wrong. 
Each of these is a meaningful and important distinction between us and between others. And so we have to have a theological understanding about this as well. We need to ask as a church, are there secondary or tertiary, meaning third level, issues which rise implicitly under the surface to the point of being included in the doctrine statement? Are there certain things that most Christians can agree to disagree on that we make tests of faith? I point all of this out because there's things that we believe that are points of shame and derision and scorn for our world. And that's not me trying to throw the world under the bus. That is what the scriptures say. The scriptures say, as we saw in the reading that Ethan did and in the prayer that Ken prayed, that the ways of the world run contrary to the ways of God, and so we must take up our cross, be willing to put down the desires which are associated with the world, and take up the desires of God and be a disciple of Christ. Which means we need to be able to be unashamed about the things the Bible teaches. Later this year, we are going to look at a sermon series on what it means to be human. And the reason why I bring this up is because most of the ethical discourse, most of the moral things we debate in our world, are not fundamentally about what God is like, but what God made us to be. Abortion is about what a human is. Sexuality is about what a human is. When we encounter that series and when we walk through it, what we will be talking about is theological truths anchored and rooted in Scripture that have moral implications, which our world looks at and says, sounds crazy. And we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to face shame and scorn and derision to simply say, I know you believe different, but I am guided by this book because I believe that this is the breathes out word of God. Because if this was up to me, I might choose something different. But if I'm submitting my will to the will of the Father, then this is what I'm called to believe. We need to ask ourselves if we're going to be people who design to think through and who produce well-reasoned understanding what the Scripture teaches, and are willing to stand on that. And to live in light of that. To make a clear case for our beliefs. As Peter writes in one of his letters, to give a hope, to give an explanation, a reason for the hope that we have. Paul here tells us how he is able to be unashamed, which is I'm grateful for because I wonder about this all the time. How is it that I can be unashamed of the things I believe when no matter what news channel I'm watching, I see things that attack my views, that tell me that I should be ashamed of them? Well, how can I not be ashamed then? Verse 12, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to him. How is Paul able to be unashamed? Because he knows God. And fundamentally, we can see that in two different ways. Paul says two things about his knowledge of God. Part one is that he simply knows him. He has a relationship with him. Part two is that he is convinced about the power of God, that God is able to guard. And I think this is fascinating because 
if we struggle with shame today about what we believe, maybe it's because we don't understand the power of God. You see, we live in what philosophers call the secular age, which doesn't mean that everybody in our culture is a non-believer, but it means that belief in the triune God of the Bible is no longer a given in our culture. There was a point where you were born into a family, into a location, and you went to a church, and you were associated with that church, and so belief in God was just the natural ethos of the community you were a part of. Somebody had to move from outside of your town into that town for you to interact with a different worldview. But today, that's not true. For better or worse, for worse in some ways because our views are challenged, for better in some ways because the mission field has been brought to us, we are surrounded by a pluralistic, meaning many, viewpoint understanding of who you are, who I am, and what this world is and why it exists. That's the secular age. One prominent Christian philosopher said it this way, even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of contestability, that there's, there's con a contest, there's fighting between different views. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. Likewise, an acclaimed sociologist, James Davison Hunter, who notes that the social conditions have uh, made up and that the, what was once inevitable belief in God have been dispensed with. We don't have those social conditions anymore. So he writes, the presumption of God and of his active presence in the world cannot be easily sustained because most important symbols, social, economic, political, and aesthetic, no longer point to him. God is simply less obvious than he once was. Or for most, no longer obvious at all, quite the opposite. Let me give one example, aesthetic. In the past, almost all art and music revolved around the church. And so it was either music or art produced for the church or was produced by a Christian patron. Uh, I, I'm willing to uh, put my honor on the line here and admit this. I used to really like Downton Abbey. No other guy in here looked at me like they understood that. If I made a football joke, everybody would be like, yeah, I get it. But no, no other guy was like, I'm right there with you. I used to like Downton Abbey. Here's an interesting thing about that TV show. They wanted it to be extremely historically accurate, which is why in the TV show Downton Abbey, you never see a family begin a meal. Why would that happen? Why would you never see a family begin a meal? Because in that day, no meal began without the patriarch of the family saying a blessing in the Lord's name over the meal. So they went, well, we don't want to have a prayer on national television, so they just cut it out. Well, applause for being historically accurate, but one of the things that that tells us is now the aesthetic nature of our world, the art produced by our world, is devoid of the presence of God. And so the things, the economic factors, the government factors, the historical factors, the art factors that used to influence people towards God are just not there anymore. And so it is more difficult to believe in God. Not impossible, but more difficult. And I say not impossible because there's good reason to believe that belief solidifies into knowledge and knowledge solidifies into certainty with regular interactions with three forces that God has given us. God's world, God's word, and God's people. 
studies about resilient discipleship and what it means to maintain faith long into your life, not struggle in college, not struggle in middle age crises, to get from the beginning of your, your life in faith to the end of your life, believing and following Jesus in a resilient, enduring way is always connected to regular, meaningful meditation on God's word, time in nature, which reminds us who we are and who God is, and time with God's people. When we're surrounded by people who come from different backgrounds and different families than us, who have encountered different hardships and different tragedies, from people from different generations who grew up with different sources of technology and different ways to find meaning, when we engage with those, God's word, God's world, and God's people, we find that resilient discipleship is not just possible, it is probable. There's a sort of knowledge and certainty that Paul testifies to in 2 Timothy that Barna research points us to, and other researchers point us to, that correlates with those things. So what should we do? What does this mean for the Christian life? Do we just try harder? More devotion, more walks in Sabino Canyon, more church activities? Well, yes, to a certain extent. I mean, if you're not doing that, there's no better time like the present to start engaging with God's word and God's world and God's people. You know, if you're watching this online and you haven't been with us in a long time, you're not with the body of Christ. I guarantee you, if you show up here, the experience of being at church would be different than the experience you have right now at home. Because being with God's people is meaningful. So there's a yes, try harder, but there's also a very distinct no. Because the message of scripture is never reach down, grab your bootstraps, and pull yourself up. You see, every world religion tells you, do X, Y, and Z, and you can commune with God. You can please God. Here's what sets the Christian religion apart from all of them. There's a prequel to the X, Y, and Z. And that prequel is that you cannot earn the pleasure of God because God's pleasure was put on you for salvation long beforehand. God was well pleased to save you before you and I ever did anything. That's why Paul can't help but before he gets into the exhortation very far, but to come back to the river of the gospel, the undercurrent of the gospel that's pushing everything forward. This is the, uh, this is the Holy Spirit-infused ADHD that I was talking about. He starts off with this, therefore. Therefore is a classic Greek sign that I'm about to build a logical, rational, well-structured argument. And he gets half a sentence into it, and then he says, but share in me the suffering of the gospel, the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of anything in me. There's no X, Y, or Z I did that got me saved, that made me pleasurable in God's sight. His pleasure was on me first. not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a, a preacher, apostle, and a teacher. The undercurrent of the gospel pushes forward every exhortation Paul pens in every letter he writes. It's just below the surface, pulling him towards his conclusions. 
And that's why we must be unashamed and learn to be unashamed about what the Bible teaches about sex and government and family and human nature and reality and whatever else it is, because ultimately that thing that we might be ashamed of is attached by a logical and theological cohesive thread to the gospel itself. Paul says it a little bit more clearly and a little bit more emphatically in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But I made the right sacrifices. But I finished my read through the Bible in a year program. But I prayed daily facing the proper direction. No. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead friends in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So where does works fit into all of this? Skip down to the bottom. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. There are good works, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works we are to do are the works of walking in faith, not the works of being saved. They are a response then. They are our response. And I mean our. I know I stand up here, and I know I have an office at this church, and I know people call me pastor, which is unnecessary if you're wondering. My name is Tyler. That one's good enough for me. Paul is speaking to a pastor. Paul is writing to a pastor named Timothy, whom he trained and discipled and left in Ephesus. And he is telling Timothy that the same gospel that saves everybody else, the same gospel that saves the the slave girl at the temple in Rome, is the same gospel that saves Timothy. The same gospel that saves those who would be considered out of our group who we don't even know and we might not even be able to imagine how they could get from where they are today to one of the seats in this church is the same gospel that saves you and me. Our works are a response to God's saving work, a fulfillment of our purpose, which he created us for. That's why we have already sung, my worth is not in skill or name. In win or lose or pride or shame. I will not boast in wealth or might or in wisdom's fleeting light. Why? Because I'm here to confess two wonders. Two wonders I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. It is the same cross that saves every single one of us. There is no difference. It is the same price, Jesus' blood, that purchased every single one of us. This is a message to a pastor. And every pastor, every evangelist, every gospel worker is saved by the same gospel as every lay Christian. So yes, we try. Yes, we apply ourselves. Yes, we expend energy in the pursuit of God and his will and loving our neighbors. But we don't pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We look to the Holy Spirit, which indwells us. 
which is a gift that has been given us. And once we look to the Holy Spirit, we can then understand these two imperatives that Paul gives us. You see, he had to get to the gospel before he told us what to do. He had to tell us who we were before he tells us what we have to do. And so this is what he says, 13 and 14. This is where the river meets the sea. This is where the intellect, the theology becomes the Christian life. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Follow and guard. It's interesting to consider these words in light of the concept of not being ashamed. Because these words challenge probably one of our various social circles. See, we entered 2024, an election year, and all of a sudden people's political identities are going to come out. But think about the notion hiding behind each of these words. Follow. If you consider follow, you are not following Paul. I mean, to a certain extent we're following Paul, but remember, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me, follow me, as what? I am of Christ. And so there's this concept of discipleship that we are following, that we are walking, that we are on a journey, that we are progressing. That we are trying to make progress towards something. This we might call the progressive element of Christianity, that there is an end in sight, and that end is the form of Jesus Christ. That end is the kingdom of heaven, and we are to make progress towards that. So too, though, there's a conservative element of Christianity. We are to guard. Progress isn't just aimless meandering in some random direction, movement for movement's sake, because we have to think about that which we cannot dispense with. We have to guard something, which implies that some force, person, system, or object has put that thing in danger. Holistic discipleship, then, is one that attempts to make progress, to question, to challenge, and to explore, but does so tightly clinging to and protecting the teaching of Scripture. That sets faithfulness to the, to the word above ambition to the world. So much of progressivism today, or what's called progressivism, is just aimless meandering towards my desires completely unrestrained. And so much of conservative, conservatism in our culture today is just unquestioned restraining of that which progressives want to do. But what scripture tells us is that there's a particular thing we are supposed to conserve and a particular thing we are supposed to make progress towards. And so I want to end where we began. This is what we believe about the scriptures, that God has spoken in them, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, as verbally inspired the word of God. The Bible is without error in its original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation, the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Why do I want to end with that? Because if this thing is up to you or me, we're going to go astray. If it's up to any political, social, university, intellectual, technological leader, we're going to go astray. We need to progress and to conserve on the basis of something that is perfect. 
We need something where we can lean on it and be stable and believe in an age where we are surrounded by doubt. We need the word of God. And we need to submit, as Ken talked about in his prayer, we need to submit what we think is smart, wise, or right to what scripture says is good, true, and perfect. And we are only going to do that as we become better students of his word. So let's pray and ask the Lord to work in us as we pursue that end together this year. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you gave us the ultimate word, the word made flesh in Christ Jesus, and you left us with a testimony in your written word of how we can live in line with your will and please you. And we are reminded that your pleasure precedes any of our works, that it was your good pleasure to condescend to us in the person of Christ to save us from our indwelling sin, from the temptations of the world, and from the schemes and powers of our enemy, the devil. Father, there is so much that we believe that might bring us to shame in cultural lives, but we ask now that you would instruct us through your word as we sing together, that you would instruct us through the singing of your people, that we might be more attracted to what you declare is honorable than what our world does. And so we pray these things in the name who is shamed and scorned by the world, but is loved and honored in your kingdom. We pray it in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.